Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Thoughts on the Roman Epistle, Chapters 1 to 8. By James Boyd. Romans Chapter 5. And our place is in the favor of God. We apprehend the grace in which he has approached us in Christ, and that Christ being our righteousness we have no place with God apart from him, but the favor in which he is. Is the favor in which we are, and it is our constant unchangeable place with God. We are in favor which we never merited, and of which we know no demerit on our part can ever deprive us. It is a question now of the one who is our righteousness, and of what he is as our righteousness in the presence of God. What a place this is, and how eternally secure. One thing only now we wait and long for, and boast in hope of, and that is the glory of God. Once we were short of it, and dreaded to think of the day in which it would be revealed. We could think of nothing in connection with it but condemnation and wrath, now we rejoice in hope of it. We are justified in view of it, and we have got a righteousness that in the presence of that glory will shine more brightly than the radiant sun in the cloudless dome of heaven. We may well boast now. Boasting comes in in its right place in this chapter. It is excluded in chapter 3, for their man's sinful condition is brought to light, and no one is better than his neighbor, for all have sinned. And come short if the glory of God, and the additional fact that righteousness is on the principle of faith puts all boasting to silence. But here boasting is permissible, for we are fit for the glory by the work of God, and therefore we boast in that which he has wrought. We boast in hope of the glory, the grace that brought salvation to us teaches us to do this, Titus chapter 2 verse 13. The glory is the next step. We have been justified by faith, we stand in grace, and the glory of God is the prospect before our souls. But the wilderness comes in between with all its testings and trials, and the hostility of the world to Christ, and to us because we are his, must be met on our way to the glory, and this, where there is an ascent to the gospel unaccompanied by a divine work in the soul, has the effect of driving back into the world those that bid fair to have left it. We are told by the Lord, Matthew chapter 13, that, like the seed sown in stony places are they who hear the word and receive it with joy, but having no root are offended when tribulation or persecution arises. But the true heart is greatly helped by tribulation, for it is cast more upon Christ than it would have been if everything had gone smoothly. And it is driven from the world which is such a snare to the people of God. We boast in tribulation, knowing that it works endurance, it may not be pleasant to be constantly exposed to the attacks of the enemy, and as we keep the highway to glory. To be made the target of the powers of darkness, who shoot their poisoned arrows from the surrounding gloom, but where the heart is true, it becomes more taken up with Christ, instead of being driven from him. Which to accomplish is the object of the devil. And endurance works hope, for we get to see how the faithful God comes in at the right moment for the deliverance of his people, and makes a way of escape for us where we could see none ourselves. We also get to see that the enemy is not invincible, and that though he may be very powerful, he that is on our side is more than a match for him. We might think at the outset, that we were going to be altogether swallowed up, and for the moment God might be obscured from our vision, and the enemy only in evidence. But we find that at the right moment God intervenes, and the enemy melts away, like the mists of night before the presence of the Lord of day. And in this way we come to be established in the faithfulness of God. We get to know that he is as good as his word, and the way he comes in for us in our difficulties by the way. Is a witness to our souls that the future will be as rich in his deliverances as the past has been, until the appearing of his glory, when will have ended forever the desert journey. Thus experience works hope. And hope does not make ashamed, for the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The day of the revelation of his glory will be a great day for us, it will be a day of unmingled joy, in which we shall see him, who is now despised and cited, honored of all.
when the heavens shall bend before him, and the earth shall throb her homage, responsive to the touch of her Creator's feet. When the angels of the might of God shall come like flames of fire from the utmost limits of the universe, to do homage to the man whom God delights to honor. When the gates and the everlasting doors shall be commanded to lift up their heads, that the King of Glory may enter, and when to the challenge, who is this King of Glory, the answer will be returned. Jehovah of hosts, he is the King of Glory. This indeed will be a great day for us, for we shall be his companions in that day. And there is no fear in our hearts that, when that day comes, there is any likelihood of our being forgotten, for already the love of God is the great light of our hearts. We have the witness and guarantee that we have not hoped in vain, for that love could not be satisfied without us, it was, love divine that did decree. We should be part through Jesus's blood. Therefore our boasting is not in any feebleness or hesitation. We are not afraid to take our place for God in the world, and to appear in it as pilgrims and strangers. And to let it be understood that all our hopes are centered in him who is at the right hand of God, and that we expect nothing from the world. The love of God in our hearts has assured to us our part with him in the day of his glory. And this love is not some sentimental chimerical dream of the superstitious mind of man. It has had its manifestation in the death of Christ. When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When it had been thoroughly proven that there lay in man no power that could bring about his own recovery, that is, when it had been demonstrated that not only was man an ungodly sinner, but that there was no strength in him to do better, than it was what is called here. Due time, and how the state of man brings into relief the love of God. Had the ungodly creature a morsel of strength to support the state of rebellion in which he was found, it might have demanded a measure of respect to be paid to the position he had taken up. But to be an enemy, and without strength, is indeed contemptible as well as evil. But when this was fully proven, then the love of God to man is declared. This is encouraging to us, for as we find out the evil of the flesh in the school of God, we are apt to get disheartened and think that this coming to light may turn away the love of God from us. But it encourages us greatly to see that the love of God to us came to light when our vileness and helplessness were fully exposed. God does not expect to find any goodness in us except what he has put there himself, neither does he expect strength in us more than the strength he has given to us. He has not approached us to look for any good in us, but to divert our thoughts from ourselves to himself. And this love of God is like no other love under the sun. For a righteous man one is not likely to die. There is nothing in a merely righteous man to draw out the affections of the heart, and the love of the creature is not sovereign, there is ever a reason for the love of man. And though an upright man after the flesh may be respected, it is not likely that he will provoke love. But for a good man some would even dare to die. A good man is one who is kind and philanthropic. A righteous man here is not one righteous according to God, but rather one who is straight and honest in his dealings with men. And the good man is, as I have said, the man who is kind and affectionate and tender with those who have to do with him. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. That is to say, there must be a reason for man's love. But the love of God is not like this, there was nothing in us to provoke anything from God but wrath, yet he loved us. God commends his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God, and it is in its manifestation we have to learn it. This is something that is outside the creature. Love is of God. It is sovereign. It has not been drawn out by anything in us, there was nothing in us to draw it out, it is this that has become the great light of our hearts. It is in the sense of this that we boast in hope of the glory of God. We were short of it as sinners, whether Jews or Gentiles, and the thought of it was only a terror to us. 
the prophet Isaiah felt his unfitness to stand in the presence of that glory, and the sight of it rang from his lips the fearful cry. Woe is me, he had never seen himself such a sinner as at that moment. How different it was with Stephen. He had never felt himself so much at home any other place as he did in the presence of the glory of God. There was no, woe is me, with him. He felt himself the most blessed man upon earth, and he felt himself in the most blessed place that it was possible for a man to occupy. What mattered the shower of stones that beat the life out of his frail body, when his soul was basking in the bright beams of the glory of God, in which he saw Jesus? Let life upon earth go, a better life was assured to him where Jesus was. Oh what a place for a mortal man to be found in. Not in the glory actually, and yet in the full light of it, and his place in it held for him by Jesus, who had shed his blood for him. That he might be justified in view of finding his place there. The heavens were opened through for him, that he might get a vision of that glorious scene in the hour of his martyrdom, and his testimony is valuable to us. For though we may not be privileged to look through those heavens in the same way in which he did, they are no less open for us, and everything is there as he saw it. With this difference that Christ is not now standing there, for he has set himself down on the right hand of God. We are toiling through the wilderness in the midst of opposition of all kinds, but the glory is the goal before us, and with the eye fixed upon Jesus there, and the heart filled with the love of God. We boast in hope of it. The day of wrath lies in the pathway of this world, and though the worldling knows nothing about it, we know that it is coming, and it will be a testing day for every living soul upon earth. But the one, in the power of whose blood we have been justified, will save us out of it. I have no doubt that the way he will do this will be, that he will come and take his church to himself before that day of wrath comes. The Thessalonian believers had found a deliverer from the coming wrath in the person of the Son of God. When that day of wrath comes, the church of Christ will have been gathered to him in heaven. In this way he will keep us out of the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole habitable world, to try them that dwell on the earth. Therefore the apostle assures us that if we have been justified in the power of his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And this love of God which has been shed abroad in our hearts, has brought us into right relations with God, for it is not only that our sins have been put away by his death. But the love declared in that which has put away the sins has made an end of the enmity that lay in our very nature, and has produced a response in our hearts, so that we love God, and thus, through the death of God's Son, we have been reconciled, and that being so, we shall be saved in the power of his life. He has not only died for us, but he lives for us in heaven. How blessed it is to know that the same one who died for us in the great love of his heart, and in the boundless love of God, now lives for us in the glory into which he has gone. What could be greater joy and comfort to our hearts in all our sorrows here, than to be continually in the sense that we have got himself alive from the dead in the presence of God? With all the love that came to light in his death living in his heart, where it will live throughout all eternity, and that we are the objects of all that love. And not only that, but our boast is in God himself. We boast in hope of the glory, for we are justified in view of it, and with the love of God in our hearts our place in that glory is assured to us, and we boast in tribulation. Because it is the world giving its verdict that we belong to Christ, and it works endurance, we are not overcome by it, neither can it separate us from the love of Christ. And above all we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It is reconciliation here, not atonement. No doubt that which has made atonement is the basis of reconciliation, but reconciliation is more than making atonement. Reconciliation means that right relations have been established between man and God, sin dealt with in the judgment of the cross, and man in right and proper relationships with God. This has been effected in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. 
on the cross he was made sin, and their sin was dealt with as it deserved, and in that judgment it was made an end of, and in Christ risen I see man to the delight of God. I do not mean to convey the thought that Christ was ever anything else than to the delight of God, but he gave himself for us, and bore the wrath of God against sin and the hiding of the face of God, so that he knew what it was to be forsaken for sin, and man as a sinner, deserved this, but all that is now over, and over forever. And he who measured and felt the distance that sin had created between man and God, now enjoys uninterruptedly the blessedness that flows from having part in a sphere where all things are of God. And we make our boast in God, for it is he who has brought all this about. And it is all through our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in him that God has intervened for us. Christ is everything to us, but it is God who has made him everything to us. It is in Christ that we have learned God in his righteousness, and in his almighty power, and in the infinite love of his heart, for it is in Christ that God has thus come to light. We see how God has been for us when everything was against us, and how he has drawn near to us, to put right that which we had put wrong, to bring man who had wandered from him, and whose mind was enmity against him, back into his presence, that he might find his home there, that his affections would be set upon his Creator and that everything that had been out of gear and discordant in our relations with God, should be brought into perfect harmony, and placed beyond the reach of disturbance forever. This God has accomplished, by and in Christ on our behalf. We had plunged everything into confusion, and the earth through our rebellion was a scene of darkness and chaos, but God has undertaken to bring all things into harmony with his blessed nature and attributes. And with all that he is, and he has placed everything upon a right footing in Christ, who lives before him to the delight of his heart. The reconciliation was effected before there was anyone in the benefit of it. It was effected in Christ, and we can never have any true thought of reconciliation until we see the place that Christ occupies in the presence of God. There we see the effect of the intervention of God on man's behalf. There we see his way of bringing order out of chaos, and his way of bringing man into true and eternal relationships with himself. Their old things have passed away, and all things have become new, and all the new things are of God, so that he can have delight in them. What a contrast to the old creation even at its best state. And the word of reconciliation is preached in the gospel, and we have received it. We had no hand in bringing it about, it has been the work of God from first to last. It is our privilege to receive it, to rejoice in it, and to boast in him who has effected it. We have seen him at work in and by Christ, toiling to bring in a new state and a new place, and new relationships for man. We have contemplated him in his intervention for us in the birth of Christ, in the service of Christ for man in the days of his flesh. And we have seen him in the death of Christ and in the resurrection and glory of Christ on our behalf, and our hearts have been won by the love that has thus come to light. And we know that all that he has been for us he is for us at this moment, and all that he is for us he shall be throughout all eternity. We know this today, but we shall know it better tomorrow, and better still the day following, and perfectly when we shall find ourselves in that home on high with Jesus and like him forever. There is nothing in the epistle higher than boasting in God, nor do I see how there could be. It is not that we boast in that which he has done for us, though it is in that which he has done for us that he has come to light. It is in that we have got to know him, but having got to know him, it is in himself that we boast. Nothing that we know of him, and nothing that we can ever know of him, can cause the slightest uneasiness in our hearts. We know his inflexible righteousness, but it is on our behalf it has come to light, we know his spotless holiness, but it has come before us in the work that he has wrought in our favor. We know his power, but it has all been put forth to effect deliverance for us, we know his love as the spring of all his activities us ward. We are in the light as he is in the light, that is, we know him in the way in which he has manifested himself, and we are, as it were, beside ourselves with joy. 
The wise man boasts in his wisdom, and the mighty man boasts in his might, and the rich man boasts in his riches, but we boast in the knowledge of God, as he has shone forth in his beloved Son. For as the darkness is past, the morning of an eternal day has dawned upon our souls, the vapors of night have all been dispersed. The blackness and the darkness of our past blind history have given place to the glory of God fully declared, and which fills our souls with unspeakable delight. Surely the light is sweet. Some of us remember the thoughts we had of God before we got to know him in Christ. We have not forgotten the feeling of awe and fear that came over our hearts when the thought of having to do with him came into our minds. The horror of those days of darkness we can well remember. And we can remember also when the light of God first reached us, when the day began to dawn for us, when the first bright ray of the grace of God penetrated the gloom that surrounded us. And when with mingled hopes and fears we turned to him. We little knew in that hour the welcome that awaited us. We fled for refuge from the death that lay upon us. But what a reception we got. And what love was lavished upon us. We crept to him as slaves to a master for a piece of bread, and he received us to his bosom as sons, clothed us as princes and set us in his presence in all the acceptance of his own son. And it was just because he would have us there. It was not because we were longing to have such a place, a lone place within his door, would have satisfied the desire of our loveless hearts, but it would not have satisfied his. And it was to satisfy his own heart that he approached us in Christ. When he drew near to us, to deliver us, we had no desire for him, we loved him not, nay, we hated him, we were sinners, ungodly, enemies. Coming into his own world, he received no ovation from his creatures, indifferentism marked the human race. All heaven was stirred, and a heavenly host woke up the heart of midnight with the announcement that the long-promised Saviour had at length appeared. True, Herod and all Jerusalem with him are troubled, and also a few of the godly in Israel are ready to welcome him, and the Magi from the east come to do homage to him. Every soul influenced by heaven above, or by hell beneath, wakes up at the advent of the Son of God, but the mass of humanity remains indifferent. What a welcome for the Creator to receive from His own creation. It was the black shadow of the cross falling over the cradle of the Saviour of the world. Yet the coldness of His reception chilled not the warmth of His infinite love to His poor wayward, deceived, benighted creature. At His birth there might be no room for Him in the inn, and during His sojourn here below through the world He might not have where to lay His head. And His onward path might be through grief and sorrow to the gibbet on Golgotha's hill, but in the might of His unquenchable love He pursued His lonely way in obedience to His Father's commandment. And in unwearying service to man, and when the place of sacrifice was reached, crowned with thorns, and subjected to every indignity that the depraved heart of man could invent, gave Himself a ransom for all in the grace of God to man. Thus has the goodness of the heart of God triumphed over the evil of the heart of man, and His love over all man's hatred. Surely we may well say, love never fails. Well may our boast be in God. From verse 12 to the end of the chapter the first Adam and the last are contrasted, and the effect of the obedience of the latter with that resulting from the disobedience of the former. Sin and death came in by the first Adam, righteousness and life have come in by the last Adam. By the first sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It was not the law that brought sin into the world, death as the witness of man's sinful condition reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not transgressed like Adam, or like the Jews a given commandment. An infant who has not known good or evil may die, for men are born under death, and the proof that death lies righteously upon all is that all have sinned. Let an infant come to years of responsibility, and it is sure to sin, for it is born with a sinful nature through its descent from Adam. 
Hence, before the law, sin was in the world. A sinful act, might not be put to account as a transgression. There having been no law given, nevertheless the sin was there. And death lay upon man as a sinner. The reason we have in verse 14 Adam spoken of as the figure of Christ is, because the apostle is about to take up the consequences to others of the transgression of Adam. And contrast it with the obedience of Christ. By the offense of the one man, Adam, the many in connection with him have come under the effect of that offense and death has reigned over them, apart from the question of their own personal guilt. In contrast with this the grace of God and the free gift, righteousness, in grace, which is by the one man Jesus Christ, has abounded unto the many who are through grace in connection with him. Sin came in by Adam, and death by sin, and the many in connection with him have suffered the consequences, but righteousness came in by Christ, and those in connection with him have that righteousness upon them. By the offense of Adam death reigned, but those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. The bearing of the one offense of Adam was toward all men to condemnation, but the bearing of the one accomplished righteousness, the sacrifice of Christ, was toward all men to justification of life, that is, to place all men beyond the reach of death in the life of Christ. Of course to be in the benefit of this, each individual must exercise faith in the gospel, and submit to the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. But the bearing of the disobedience of Adam was to condemn every one, and the bearing of the act of Christ's obedience on the cross was to justify every one. What a mighty victory on the part of God! He has triumphed over all the power of the enemy. To him be all the glory. Sin, death, and condemnation came in by Adam, and all the human race came under their power, and lay in the dust, crushed, lost, and helpless. But God has taken account of our deep need, and has wrought by Christ on our behalf to his eternal praise and glory, and he has proved more than a match for all the hosts of evil. It might have been thought, that when sin came in, all was hopeless, and as far as man was concerned, no doubt, this was so, for everything looked black as the heart of midnight, from the standpoint of weak degraded man, and had not God intervened on our behalf, we must have perished forever. But God will not allow himself to be defeated by his creature in his own creation. He is infinite in wisdom and in power, and knows just how far to allow the rebellious creature to plot and plan, as he seeks to sap the foundations of his eternal throne. And he knows just the right moment to intervene, and remove the proud worm from his path, as he moves onward in the fulfillment of his deep design. The folly and madness of the creature is manifested in his taking the field as the antagonist of his creator. Happy is the man who humbles himself in the presence of his maker, and confesses himself to be but dust and ashes. In the dust upon our faces is the place that becomes us as children of Adam, and, to lie there until he is pleased to lift us up, is true wisdom on our part. He has given us to see how truly he is for us in raising up his son to be our righteous head, that we might not be naked before him in our sin and shame but that we might have upon us a righteousness, fit to appear in before the revelation of his glory. He has not left us to the consequences of the sin of Adam, nor to bear the judgment of our own transgressions, but has made a way whereby the vilest sinner of Adam's race may be saved. Our sin has not been greater than his grace, for where sin abounded grace has much more abounded, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus has the whole effect of the offense of Adam been nullified by the one obedient act of Christ, when he gave himself a ransom for all. If a sinner hears today of the grace of God and dies unsaved, it is in spite of all that that has been wrought on his behalf. The righteousness of God has been revealed in his favor, the power of God has been put forth for his deliverance. And the love of God has been the spring from whence have proceeded all his activities in his intervention through Christ. There is no reason why a sinner should perish, and if he does, the blame must lie at his own door.
I do not imply that he would have been blameless had not Christ died, for man is a rebellious creature, and cannot be allowed to prolong a life of lawlessness and enmity against his Creator. But now that salvation has been obtained for him at such infinite cost, and without his cooperation in any way, what must be the judgment of the rejecter of such grace? The Apostle says to the opposers at Antioch, Ye judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. The Gospel which was announced to them, made known the disposition of God toward them, and pointed out the way of life which had been opened by the death and resurrection of the Son of God. No barrier lay in the way, no work too burdensome for them to perform was imposed upon them, no yoke of ordinances too grievous to be borne was placed around their necks. No mount that might be touched loomed up before the affrighted vision, browbound with blackness, and around which wrathful lightning flamed, and which trembled to its roots beneath the tread of man's almighty creditor. Come down to thunder in his ears the full amount of his liabilities, but God revealed in grace, draw near to man in Christ, in whom his righteousness and power and love were all displayed. To rescue from destruction helpless sinners who wallowed in sin, indifferent to God. If he that despised the law of Moses died without mercy, it may well be asked, of how much sore a punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29. To turn away from the word spoken by Moses, was to rebel against the authority of God, but to reject the gospel, is to reject God himself revealed in infinite love. If the punishment is to be proportionate to the offense, what must the judgment be of those who refuse to submit themselves to the revelation of the grace of God in his beloved Son? To make no response to his righteous demand is surely provoking, but to despise the salvation of God, which is founded in the death of his own Son, is the most supreme act of wickedness and madness the creature could be guilty of. How terrible for man, with death lying upon him as the wages of sin, to judge himself unworthy of eternal life. And this he does by his rejection of the gospel. Life has come to man in the Son of God, it came into the world in him, but by his death and resurrection it has been made available for man and the object of the preaching of the gospel in the world is, that men might possess that gift. The gospel does not set man up in the life of the first Adam, this would be impossible, for death has come in upon that, but man is to live in the life of the last Adam, the one in whom he finds justification. Hence if the gospel is rejected, eternal life is rejected, and man must be judged according to the deeds done in a life which can do nothing but evil.